Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing in the Psalms today in a series called Facing Trouble and Finding God. So let's turn to Psalm 73, verses 12 to 28, for a message entitled Facing Eternity. Let's join Dr. Newfeld now. Like to commend to you a little exercise intended to build your faith. Now, I must warn you, in order to do this right, it's going to take several hours, but it's an exercise well worth your while. Put aside several hours and go for a walk, making sure you, you notice everything around you. I mean, notice the trees, the buildings in your city, the cars, the restaurants, the bars, the churches, the office buildings, and the storefronts. Have a look at the stones on the street and see the grass and even the dirt that's under your feet. Notice the litter that someone carelessly threw away. Have a look at all the people you see driving by or walking by and see that some are in a hurry and some have stopped to talk to someone. Perhaps you'll need to go to the mall and have a look at the stores and the endless varieties of merchandise that are being sold. And if you and your walk run across a dog or any animal at all, notice it as well. But in order to make this work, there's something that you've got to do along with noticing everything. With each thing that you look at, repeat this line to yourself. Say, in just a short period of time, this thing will no longer exist. Say that to the car that you admire that's driving by. Say that to the birds you see flying in the sky. Say that to the imposing buildings in your city. Say that to the earth that's under your feet. Say that to your feet. Say what is self-evident. All of this will soon cease to exist. Even the people that I see, they're going to die long before the buildings collapse into nothingness. And as I've said, this exercise takes several hours before it really begins to sink in. And while you're doing this, you owe it to yourself to repeat several Bible verses. Here, for instance, the words of Jesus from Matthew 24, verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Or perhaps you'd be well served to memorize 1 John 2.17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And while you're doing that, you need to encourage yourself with 2 Corinthians 4.17-18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Why am I talking about this? I am because we've been looking at Psalm 73, and in this psalm, Asaph, one of Israel's spiritual leaders, tells of a time in his life when he almost abandoned his faith. He began to doubt God's goodness and his justice. He was meditating what he thought was real life. He saw the prosperity of the wicked. He saw that they lived long lives that in many cases, their bodies were not given to the diseases that plagued others. In consequence, he says, their tongues strut through the earth. He meant to say their boasts in themselves are heard by everyone. And the more Asaph thought about that, the angrier he became. And he thought to himself, God doesn't even care. And Asaph said that his feet had almost slipped. The grounding for his faith had almost given way. And why was that? Was it because he saw the arrogance of the wicked? Or was it because he had taken his eyes off of eternity? Listen up. We are never facing reality if we're not facing eternity. 
As long as our lives are consumed in the things that are seen, in the things that will soon be no more, we are losing faith. So let's turn back to what Asaph said. I'm reading Psalm 73, verses 10 to 11. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is their knowledge of the Most High? See, Asaph knows that the more the wicked prosper and the more they boast, the more a new generation will want to be like them. They say that's the good life. They see their successes and they come to the obvious conclusion that ungodliness pays off. God doesn't care. Listen to what Job said in Job 21, verses 7 to 15. Why do the wicked live and reach old age and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail. Their cow calves and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? Now, that's bad enough, but, but here's the kicker. In verses 12 to 14, Asaph contrasts his experience with the one of the wicked. He says, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And this is where the envy set in. No doubt as a worship pastor, Asaph knew what it was to be criticized and sometimes be put in his place. And perhaps he was occasionally treated this way by wicked people. And every spiritual leader who seeks to be godly does understand the pain and the constant frustration of criticism. That's disheartening. But there's a lesson we must learn here. And it's a very simple one, but it's a hard one. In spite of all of his frustration and his anger and his shaky faith, there is something that Asaph determines in his heart. Listen to what he says in verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. See, there are times when we must not speak. Especially those who are in leadership need to be at times quiet. I remember a number of years ago, a prominent evangelical leader stating publicly that he did not know if he believed in hell and he was toying with the idea of universalism. And then after some time, he again settled on the historic Christian position of a God of infinite justice. But in the meantime, his transparent statements of his doubts destroyed the faith of some. Asaph would not make that mistake. He knew intuitively that he was struggling with doubt but that his struggle had not yet reached the end point, And in the meantime, he just shut up. See, if you preach or if you teach or if you influence people for the gospel, this is for you. If you have children, you're discipling. If you're teaching in kids' ministry, if you're, if you're involved in youth ministry, if, if you're leading a small group, if you're an elder, there are times to be quiet. Asaph knew that Christian leaders shut their mouths at times. But I could almost hear the objection. Aren't we supposed to be authentic? Now, you can't smile and say that all is well while, while doubts are raging inside your mind. So what is he supposed to do? Should he just bottle this stuff in? No, he's, he's supposed to take this to God, which is what all of us should do. But rather than go further, let's make another point of application. We've said that God is good, but we don't always see it. So we add to that a second thought. 
We become discouraged when all we look at and all we meditate on is the seeming triumph of evil. See, in other words, if all you do is spend your time concentrating on the things with which you disagree, or the things that are wrong, or the things that don't make sense, you will experience an increasing coldness towards your God. You know, but someone's going to say, I mean, does that mean that we should simply ignore this stuff? Well, perhaps that's the wrong question. Perhaps your problem is that you only see things from your perspective. Have you ever asked God to show you these same things from his perspective? Or do you think that God doesn't see what we see? What do you think God sees when he looks at the things that you look at? See, let's read verses 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. See, Asaph is saying that I would have lost my footing. I would have lost the ground for my faith had I not done something. I entered the sanctuary of God. Now, now in his day, that meant that he entered into the tabernacle. He was, after all, a Levite. And as a Levite, he could enter into the holy place. But what is it that he found there? John Kelvin thought that because the law of God was housed there, Asaph would have taken time to read the law and encounter it again and to see God's holy word. Perhaps that's exactly what he did. But others have argued that Asaph simply watched the sacrifices performed there, and as he watched, he realized there in the temple that sin brings death and that the wicked would not escape the judgment. Well, that's perhaps exactly what he did. But perhaps it was a combination of all of these things, reading the word, watching, even participating in the sacrifices, praying, being silent before God. And by the way, I hope you see the point of similarity. Having a regular time of devotions is important. In daily devotions, we, number one, read the scriptures, and number two, remember the sacrifice of Jesus, and though whose death reminds us just how seriously God takes sin, and number three, in this atmosphere, praying to God while we allow his perspective to flood our souls, and it's only through the disciplines that God has provided that we gain perspective. And chances are that if you're losing perspective, you need to enter into the sanctuary of God. Truth in Life Today is one of the many Bible teaching and engagement ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Our mission is simple. We teach the Bible, engaging people in its timeless truth and relevance for daily living. Connecting God's people to God's Word in our world today is critical. And Truth in Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld engages timely issues of life and faith so important for God's people to discuss. Special guests each week will discuss issues of the sanctity of life, finding hope and joy in difficult circumstances, how God is working in our nation and around the world, and so much more. So join us on Truth and Life today by tuning in on Vision TV every Sunday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern, or subscribing to the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel, or simply visiting us at backtothebible.ca. And make sure you let us know you're watching. If you'd like to learn more or share a gift to support Truth and Life Today or any of the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. We've said that God is good, but sometimes we can't see it. And furthermore, we can become discouraged when we look at the triumph of evil. 
But then I must add that in our moments of greatest discouragements and doubts, we must enter into God's presence through the reading of Scripture, through meditating on the death of Jesus at the hands of wicked men, and in that moment, we begin to gain perspective. But what is it that we find at such moments? According to verses 18 to 26, Asaph gets three perspectives he never had before. The first new perspective found in verse 18 to 20 is the perspective that considers the death of the wicked. Truly you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly in terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, you rouse yourself. You despise them as phantoms. Now think about those lines and compare that to what Asaph had just said prior to that. In verse 17, he said, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. You see the delusion of the wicked? See, because of their arrogance, because their proud tongue struts through the earth, they can't imagine that their undoing is just before them. It would utterly astonish them to know that God has set out a net for them and that they are about to be caught in his trap. It was Jonathan Edwards who pointed out that it is no advantage to the wicked man that he should live to be 90 years of age. Throughout eternity, he will wish that he had died at the age of 10. Instead, he was given 80 more years to do wickedness and outrage God's law and then to be brought to justice for every evil act in those additional 80 years. If he had seen hardship, he might have repented, but he saw nothing of hard days. And all of this was God working against him. The God whom he defied had set him on a slippery place, and in time, his foot would slip. That the eventual death of the wicked was the first new perspective that Asaph observed. Here's the second perspective. It's found in verses 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. See, Asaph notices not only how embittered he had become, but he notices his own response to God. He was like an animal. Now, what practically would that mean? <laughs> I don't think, I mean, all of you animal rights people here, that, that Asaph is saying anything negative about animals. Rather, he's affirming the nature of animals. They may function on the basis of instinct. They, they may respond to their immediate environment in a variety of ways, but they do not respond by regarding the wisdom of God. They simply respond. And Asaph is saying that the very uniqueness of the image of God that is given us as human beings that can react with wisdom and knowledge and perception and intelligence and understanding, we can learn the knowledge of God. That's something no beast can do. And he in his bitterness had reduced himself to a beast. You know, bitterness will do that. It will strip you of your essential humanity. Stop making decisions based upon reason and wisdom and your best interests and even the knowledge of God. All reactions now are a matter of impulse, and all impulse is directed toward revenge and expressions of anger, bitterness that things are as they are. And Asaph says, that's an insight. I didn't know it, but that's how I was. And then Asaph got a third insight. It's found in verses 23 to 26. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, Asaph realized that as he was thrashing about, God had never left him. And by the way, this is the promise given to the elect. God will never leave us. 
He will not abandon us to our doubts and our frustrations and anger and lack of wisdom. Instead, God will hold our hand. But for what purpose? Do you remember verse 24? You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Yeah, it's really true that Old Testament saints looked forward to an eternal future in the glory of God. To those who say that no one in the Old Testament looked forward to eternity, well, you're going to have to read verse 24 again. But of course, there is more. In short, Asaph acknowledges that God's plan was never to leave him as a doubter, but to more firmly establish him as a believer. God was for him. Who could be against him? God would establish him. And you might then say that Asaph would have recognized that God was the one who drew him to the sanctuary. And so we've seen that God is good, but we don't always see it, that we become discouraged when we concentrate only on that which is wrong, and that at such moments we must enter into his presence. And with that comes the promise. When we allow our present-day experiences to be colored by the ever-present reality of eternity, soon we gain an eternal perspective. So let's read verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, I like this verse because one of the songs I remember singing in church went as follows. Though my heart and flesh may fail, and I can hardly speak at all, I will not keep your praises from my lips. Don't you see that for thousands of years, starting with Asaph, songs of praise have been sung saying exactly that very same thing. And that's not because it's easy to sing that or because pastors or spiritual leaders have never doubted. It's because when we enter into God's sanctuary and understand wisdom, we can then lift up our hands and sing that with great joy. And with that thought, Asaph ends this beautiful psalm. I'm reading verses 27 and 28. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. In some ways, the end of this psalm is very much like the beginning. Asaph began by saying, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But here in the end, Asaph actually adds something that he did not put in the beginning. Here he acknowledges that God's goodness to his elect is that the elect, when they die, don't eternally perish. God is their refuge. He is the place the godly run to and find protection. And it's precisely this that the wicked lack. For both the godly and the wicked will die. Both of them will soon be no more. But the godly, at the moment in which they reach the extremity of life, they have a refuge, a place of safety, a place where they are protected while the storm of death passes by. And then Asaph has to add one more thought. It's the latter part of verse 28. His last words were that I may tell of all your works. You may recall that earlier in the psalm, Asaph said that if he had talked openly about his doubts, he would have betrayed the next generation who followed God. But now, having been in God's sanctuary and having seen things from God's eternal perspective, well, now Asaph is not zipping his mouth. Now he's opening his mouth. He wants all to hear of the works of God. And this is the appropriate time to openly declare his doubts. The psalm that he writes is for instruction. Now he tells his people that that he had once gone through a time of such doubt that, that his feet had almost slipped, and then he was able to tell them that he would have slipped were it not for the fact that God guided him with his counsel and held on to his right hand. The reason he made it through onto the other side is that God was committed to him. And because of that, Asaph now viewed the prosperity of the wicked through the eyes of faith. 
See, we've seen that God is good, but we don't always see it. That we become discouraged when all we do is to concentrate on what's wrong. We are then invited into God's presence, and there we gain the eternal perspective. You know, I've called this one-week series Facing Trouble and Finding God. And let me reach some very early conclusions to this series. There are times when God does not remove trouble from us, but the presence of God makes trouble seem impotent. Wicked men may prosper for a moment, but that is the issue. It is but for a moment. And when we started, I suggested a little exercise in faith. Look at everything around you and say to yourself, very soon now, all of this will cease to exist. Indeed, Paul has said that even our afflictions, our hardships, are momentary in light in the face of eternity. And unless eternity is in view, we are not going to see this reality. But when eternity is in view, the reality of evil is not erased, but it is rendered impotent of any eternal power. See, may God in mercy allow you to perceive the unseen world that is eternal. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I ask of you now that if there are any that are hearing my voice that have never trusted in you and placed their faith into the one who is unseen, may this today give them perspective. May they say, O God, show me that which is unseen. May my confidence and trust be in you. And for all of us who already know you, O Lord God, reorient our thinking so that we may lay our eyes on that which never passes away. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John, we we talked a little bit about the unseen and the seen. Help me understand, how am I supposed to see that which is unseen or even experience that which is unseen? Yeah, I know, and it seems illogical, but I think it's, there's, it's, a, it's an understanding that we get from the Scripture. We allow God to describe to us that which our eyes can't see, and then we take God's word that the things he's describing actually exist. And so I think there is this holy, sanctified imagination that we're supposed to have, and I don't mean imaginary, I mean imagination in which we take seriously what God is describing and then ask ourselves, what does that actually look like? And the more that we do that, the more we begin to live within that reality. And I think that's precisely what we're supposed to do, and that's how you do it. Thanks for sharing that with us, John. This is Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. From February 7th to 16th, 2020, make plans to join us for our Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. You'll be sailing the seas for nine days aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curacao, Bonaire, and more. You'll be joining Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and now confirmed special friends and musicians Shane and Angela Weeb. I guarantee you'll be spiritually enriched and challenged, you'll laugh and be encouraged, and you'll enjoy great fellowship and refreshment. The Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Caribbean Cruise is a unique opportunity for connection, and we'd love to see you join us. Come on your own or with family and friends as you enjoy incredible ports of call, everything the ship has to offer, and a week of ministry designed specifically for the occasion. 
Check it all out at backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.